You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Interstate Batteries. Interstate Batteries has been a proud supporter of the Sportsman's Nation since day one. So if you're looking for any type of batteries, whether it's for your truck, your car, your trail cameras, your rangefinder, stop into a local Interstate Batteries retail location. There are thousands upon thousands of them all over the United States. Talk with a battery specialist and get the batteries that you need to go on with your life. Interstate Batteries outrageously dependable. This is the Average Conservationist Podcast, brought to you in partner with 2% for Conservation. 2% for Conservation's mission is to create an alliance of businesses and individuals that ensure the future of hunting and angling by committing their time and dollars to fish and wildlife. 1% of time plus 1% of money equals 2% for Conservation. 2% helps businesses and people pair with conservation causes to support things that fit what they care about. Whether you're into fishing, hunting, or just getting outdoors, 2% can help you not only start giving back to wildlife, but get certified for it. Getting 2% certified means you've made the same commitment as popular brands like Sitka, First Light, Stone Glacier, and Seek Outside in giving at least 1% of your time and money back to wildlife. But it's not just for outdoor companies. Breweries, contractors, coffee roasters, and even piano repair companies have earned 2% certification and stand out as leaders in their communities businesses that are committed to conservation deserve your business when you shop learn more about two percent for conservation at fishandwildlife.org that's fishandwildlife.org all right welcome back guys to another episode of the average conservationist podcast I'm your host, Marcus Ewing, and this is episode number 18. Now, before I get into today's guest, I want to take a quick minute and say happy opening day to all of my um, fellow Michigan archery hunters, um, possibly some other states as well, but I know that um, for sure uh, today's opening day of whitetail archery season. Um, So whether you're getting a chance to listen to this uh, possibly on the way out to the stand, maybe on the way home this evening, um, I hope you guys enjoy it. I wish you guys nothing but luck and safety out there in the woods and, uh, you know, knock something over, uh, put some meat in the freezer, start the season off right. So, um, today's guest is actually, uh, Jared Walker and Jared is the owner and founder of 2% certified Flint Ridge rifles. Um, they're actually the only firearm company that is 2% certified. Uh, and I think that speaks volumes to, um, Jared and his views on conservation, knowing that, uh, for the most part, uh, people that are buying his, his rifles are using, um, those to harvest animals. 
Um, and what better way to, um, you know, put your money where your mouth is in terms of conservation than building custom rifles and then giving 10% of that back to conservation groups. Um, we have a, a really cool conversation because I am not, uh, real big into, um, like guns. I mean, I, I rifle hunt and, you know, I've, I've had a shotgun my entire life and rifles, but I don't really know the intricacies that go into, you know, the ballistics and, and all that stuff. I mean, hunting in Michigan here, there's not really a huge need for me to, to have to, to go, uh, and take a deep dive into a lot of that stuff. So, uh, Jared talks about a lot of that stuff. Uh, you know, really the whole process of what goes into making a custom hunting rifle, uh, and kind of what you can expect, uh, if you purchase uh, a rifle from Jared, um, you know, Jared grew up in the Ozarks. Um, so he, he's spent, uh, a, the better part of his life, uh, shooting, you know, high powered rifles, uh, at distance. Um, he tells some, some pretty cool stories of some shots that he's taken over the years. So, uh, it's, uh, it's pretty cool to hear that because, you know, again, someone like me, I've, you know, not had to shoot for more than, you know, 200 yards. So, uh, to hear some of his, his shots that he's taken again is, uh, is really cool to hear about. Um, just a really fun conversation. And, uh, I couldn't think of a, a better way to kind of kick off deer season, uh, at least here in Michigan, um, than having, uh, you know, uh, a, a company that, that makes, um, custom hunting rifles that we use. So again, Jared Walker, Flint Ridge Rifles. Enjoy, guys. All right. Joining me today, I have the owner of 2% Certified Business Flint Ridge Rifles, Jared Walker. Jared, how's it going today? Uh, doing good. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, no problem. I know uh, this time of year and, and trying to get anything done can be uh, a little bit uh, taxing to, to, to carve out a, you know 45 minutes or an hour, so I, uh, I appreciate you taking some time. Oh, for sure. No, I think this is uh, totally worth the time, you know, to get out here and just to talk. And, uh, yeah, I know we're all very busy right now. We've got hunting season that's yeah. staring us down the face, and everybody's anxious for that weather to turn and uh, get out there and get after it. Yeah, I know. We, You look at the weather right now, and you see some days coming up where it's going to be, you know, like high in the in the low 70s, and you're like, ooh, it's going to be nice and cool today and everything like that. We're just – everyone's just kind of chomping at the bit for that that fall weather to really get here. Yeah, I, it, it's uh, when you start looking at those lows versus the highs, and when you start seeing those lows in the morning, you're like, "There's 50. There's 50. That means that the upper 40s are coming." Yep, <laughs> exactly. Like, yeah, it's like you're ready to get out there, and it's like, it's like, all right, um, September 1st will be here before you know it, which means uh, I may have to start sneaking in and uh, hanging some stands. So yeah, there you go. Yeah. Now I know Jared, you uh, you're located here in Michigan. So are you uh, born and raised in Michigan here? Or? No, no, I'm a transplant. So uh, my wife is from Michigan. We actually live in her hometown. So she's from Howell. Okay. Um, I'm originally from Arkansas. So I'm I'm born and raised in those are mountains of Arkansas. So Mountain Home is where uh, I'm originally from. Uh, and then I lived, oh gosh, up until my oh, early 30s. I lived in Northwest Arkansas, uh, you know, for for about 10 years. And then we ended up uh, moving to a uh, kind of like the suburbs of Atlanta for, you know, for about a year and a half. And then we decided, you know, we wanted to be near family. So we ended up making the move back in 2016 and we moved up here. So, and then we just kind of planted and said, all right, here we are. Okay. So, yeah. So yeah, it works out good. I actually, I love it. And, um, and being in Michigan, 
man, it's a great sportsman state. It really is. It's, if you like to do stuff outdoors, what I like is, is like it doesn't shut down in the wintertime. It just creates other opportunities for things to do. And, uh, you know, it's like <clears throat> I look at our garage now and when we first got here to now and now there's like hockey skates out there, there's snowboard, there's skis, there's snowshoes. And I'm like, yeah, I love it. Yeah, there's <clears throat> there's something about Michigan that it's it's kind of hard to put your finger on, and unless you're from Michigan, it's you, a lot of people don't quite understand. But yeah, there's obviously all the outdoor recreating that you can do. Uh, I mean, the Great Lakes is is such an appeal, and just not only the Great Lakes, but just the sheer amount of inland lakes you know that we have. And summertime in Michigan is tough to beat. I mean, it, it really oh, is. Oh, it is. Oh, and then like. You know, it depends. It doesn't really matter when you go up north. It doesn't matter which side of the state you're on, or if you're mm-hmm. going to the UP, what have you. And even like you said, some of the bigger inland lakes. I mean, we just got back a couple weeks ago. We were up uh, near Traverse City and Elk Rapids, and the kids just have a blast up there. Um, my my brother-in-law, his parents live right there on the beach, and we're able to go to their property and go out. And I mean, and just you know, and finding Petoskey stones, digging around, playing on the beach. Just ha- I mean, it's just and the key seeing the kids and how much fun they have. And I just, I love it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's funny. You said that we, um, my, uh, I go with my wife's family every year up to, to Travers and we stay on, uh, Skigmog Lake, which is connected right there to, to Elk Lake and, and right outside of Elk Rapids there. So yeah, it sounds like we're in the same, in the same general area. And it's, I mean, I grew up in Northern Michigan originally. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm down in Southeast Michigan now, but whenever I go back up there, you know, I always say to myself, like, why, why would I have ever wanted to, to leave this area to move? You know, when you're, you know, a teenager and, and you grow up up there, you just, you're kind of longing for, for something different, for more people, for a little bit more, you know, a little, you know, more things to do and stuff like that. And then as you, as I become an adult and I have a family now, it's like, man, get me out of, get me out of the big, the bigger city, so to speak, and, and get me back to the, the more rural, the more country yeah. lifestyle. And, and I've been super blessed and fortunate. I mean, even where I grew up as a kid, I grew up in a sportsman's paradise. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, we had, like I said, we're in the Ozark Mountains. I mean, I could go 15, 20 minutes south of my parents' house. And I mean, and there's a million acres of national forest sitting there. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And there's like three rivers, two lakes. And I mean, there's trout fishing. There's all the other, you know, big, bigger lakes and then I move away, go to college and do, you know, and then I was blessed to, you know, I got to experience the whole other side. I ended up going to uh, college at Arkansas state and everybody duck hunted there. Cause you were on the Delta flyway. Right. right. And I'm like, man, I learned, I mean, I would get up way early in the morning and we would go duck hunting and then I'd have to cut out and make it to class and do everything else. And then we would go back out in the evening and duck hunt again. So <laughs> we, we, it is. I'm, I guess I'm probably more of an opportunist than anything. You yeah. know, like if there's something out there, I'm probably going to chase after it and just wherever you are and just find what's good for that area and, and go with the flow. Yeah, that's just it. You just got to do a little bit of legwork to figure out yeah what what you can maximize your time with in terms of of, of trying to hunt or fish or um, any type of recreating like that. Right. So now your company, Flint Ridge Rifles. Uh, it, it seems pretty obvious in the name, but why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So, um, so Flint Ridge rifles, um, 
a lot of people ask me with like being near Flint and I'm like, it has actually, you know, Flint, Michigan's not even an hour from my house, but it's like, it has nothing to do with Flint. You know what I mean? Right. But it's, um, it's actually where I grew up. Um, so I lived on Flint Ridge okay. as a kid. So, and I mean, that's the name of the street that even that I live on. So I lived on Flint Ridge place on that, on like a Ridge. So, <laughs> so it's like, um, it was literally just kind of like going back to like, that's where it was. That's where it all started from. And I, and I just, I loved the name, you know, and, um, and even there was a piece there too, kind of like, uh, like it was in scripture. Like when you say you like, you can set your face like Flint, you know what I mean? It was a piece out of the Bible. And I was just like, all right, I really like that. And, and it was like, and I will not be deterred. And so it was like, all right. And, the, that's where the Flint Ridge name actually originated from. Cause I got so many people are like, is it the Flint river? Is it this and that? I'm like, no, no, it's actually back in the Ozarks. <laughs> no, it's a, it's a super cool name. And the more like you, you say it and you kind of, you know, I've, I've I can see, or I've seen your, um, your, uh, your, your company's logo. I mean, it, it, it sounds like a, a rifle company or some type of firearm manufacturer. I mean, it just, I, th- yeah. I think you did a very good job with the name on and, that. And what's really cool too is if you ever actually take our logo and you know it's a crosshairs, right? And mm-hmm. then you see the F on it. If you actually rotate, it actually becomes a mountain with like a sun coming up out of the. So if you actually look at it, so there's there's it's like a, it's there's like a little hidden thing in there, but if you just like I said, you just kind of rotate it a little bit and look at it a different way, it actually becomes a ridge with a, like a sun popping out. Nice. That's very cool. Yeah. Now, how did you get started building custom hunting rifles? Yeah. So, um, you know, like we just kind of mentioned earlier, like I'm a, I've been a gearhead my entire life, pretty much like I've always been into gear. Um, and then a lot of it came from my dad. Um, and as far as like accuracy goes, um, I was, I've never been settled and okay with just about factory on anything. Everything I have, I tend to modify or tweak. Um, and so growing up, you know, our hunting style was a lot different. Um, and it's, it would be totally foreign to somebody from the North or anything else. It's like, we grew up hunting whitetails with dogs. Okay. So, and it, but that was just the, at the culture at the time and with everything was, that's what we did. So, uh, it was, uh, heck we used to use more like, you know, the, the old Remington 7,400 Woodmasters, right. Or lever action rifles. It was like more of like brush hunting and, you know, with dogs and whatnot. Well, well things changed. Those laws changed. That was no longer there. Right. Um, and then also too, was like trying to extend our effective range and become really good. So, we were lucky that where my grandpa on his land back home, we actually have our own thousand yard range back there. So, yeah. So, um, and we've just, I grew up basically shooting at longer ranges and, you know, I talk about my dad having a portion of that, you know, like getting it from him. Well, it really came from like my great grandpa who lived for, uh, he lived out in Colorado for a while, worked, you know, with like, um, timber and whatnot. And, um, you were out near the Gunnison area. Well, he would, and even after that, when he was in Arkansas, and they would go back out every year, and they would spend a couple weeks out there deer hunting, he would make what he used to call, like, 
artillery shots. So let's think back to like the Jack O'Connor days, right? Shooting something with like a 270 or 30 S6. Like you, it was all Kentucky windage. It was all holdover, right? But he could, you know, he would look and like, you know, like there'd be a mule deer on the other side of a, a mountain over there. And it was basically shoot, okay, no, low, you know, trying to, you know, shoot longer ranges because that was something too. Like even way back then, like he was hunting with scopes where most people were just still using just like open sights, right? Right. And then if you look at him and like it was always about the accuracy piece. And then I had my dad, right? And, um, so my dad still this day we got stacks of like precision shooting magazines and it was basically like a monthly journal this is before like forums and chats and all the other stuff it was like the best of the best would write into this magazine and there was so much information that you could obtain about accurizing not only factory doing better hand loads and all these other things you could do to make a more accurate rifle so from us, um, and to really answer your question, is like, what did it take to come to this point? We realized, too, that over time, there was only so much you could really do to factory rifles to make them, like, uber precise, right? right. You can have a good shooting, you know, factory gun. And, you know, over time, we're living in an age now where there's been so many technological advances in machining and, like, uh, materials that, you know, when we talk about, like, a one-inch you know, like our one MOA, right? It's a gun that can shoot a one inch group at a hundred yards, mm -hmm. right? That's becoming kind of like the standard. If you realize, let's just wind the clock back a little bit. People used to go sit the pie plate, right? Out at a hundred yards. Did you hit the pie plate? Yep. Okay. Let's go hunt. Right. Yeah, we're good. Yeah. Okay. Well think about that. That pie plate is, let's say 10 inches, right? <laughs> and then they were okay because that 10 inches is vitals, right? Right. Exactly. It's the size of a vital. So well, they're like, all right, well I'm inside the vitals at a hundred yards. So Yep, let's go shoot it. I nailed that pie plate. <laughs> so, and what we've done over time is we've shrank that, right? So yeah. take that 10 inches and now we're down to one, to right? To a golf ball, yeah. Right, and, you, and, and, and that has become the standard. And what we want to do is we wanted to cut that standard in half again to where we produce guns that shoot half-inch groups at 100 yards with factory ammo. And then we know that from there we can, I mean, I have hand loads all the time. Like I got guns that shoot quarter and eighth inch groups. You know what I mean? Wow. At at a hundred yards to where I can sit there and literally like watch my bullet holes go on top of bullet holes. Right. Oh, wow. And that's the level of accuracy that I expect. If I shoot larger than a half inch or if I'm shooting a three quarter inch group, I'm like, I feel like I'm having a bad day, <laughs> <laughs> you know? And I'm like, it's just, I've gotten so used to having precision, rifles and setups that i expect that right but and then two what i building that into it it goes with it a sense of confidence mm -hmm. that i go out into the field now that if i know that that gun is capable of doing that and i do my part of practicing right mm -hmm. then i know that when a bull or a buck walks out and that opportunity sets up there i can range it dial it and take it you know, and I'm not having to second guess what's going into that. Now, what is the biggest difference between like, um, like just your standard factory, um, rifle that's shooting, let's say, you know, a one inch MOA, like how, what is the difference between that and, you know, the half inch or the quarter inch MOA? I mean, what is, what is the difference in the rifles or, you know, how yeah. is, how are you getting, I mean, you know, you're essentially cutting your MOA in half, how, I mean, which doesn't seem like, you know, a half inch doesn't seem like a lot, but obviously it is. So what, what's the difference there? 
Yeah, when you really get into it, um, like I said, there's a lot of a lot of good factory guns out there that will shoot well, right? Um, when you start peeling those things apart, you know, most people don't take their guns completely apart. The first thing I do is rip one completely apart and check everything. You know what I mean? <laughs> but uh, I uh, so if you were to take, well, I'll use I'll use a 700 as an example, right? Because a Remington 700 SPS, right? Most people have seen those all black. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, most of the time you are getting a, um, an injection molded stock, right? That's completely plastic. Um, uh, and from that stock, uh, the materials that go into it, when you look at, uh, the barrels, a majority of the time when they hit a price point are, um, chromoly barrels versus like a, um, match grade stainless, um, the tolerances also too inside some of these things you know like from factory you have to be able to um there's a governing body and they it's s-a-a-m-i but basically um it's that's the manufacturer the um, governance body around guns to where it's called sammy and when you look at factory ammo it has to be able to shoot through this large range right mm-hmm. of uh so any 30-06 has to be able to shoot any 30-06, right, no matter the manufacturer. A 300 Win Mag ammo has to be able to fire in a Browning, a, you know, a, a Winchester of Remington. It has to universally be able to go through it. When you start getting into uh, custom pieces, um, our tolerances are way tighter than what's coming through from a factory site. The materials also that go into our components completely changes too. Um, I mentioned that... Uh, like an injection molded stock. Um, first thing that I would do if somebody said like, you know, I want to keep this stock. I like it. Well, I'm going to what we call like bed the action and the receiver and the recoil lug. So we're going to fill that thing up with, you know, like an epoxy to where if you were to take it apart and put it back together again, mm-hmm. it needs to go in the same spot. Right. So, so much of um, precision goes into like what you would talk about like from a manufacturing process and lean and things like that you're trying to minimize variations right right the, as you start minimizing variations in your manufacturing process and your, the repeatability if you know that that gun's going to back together in the exact same spot every time and you're torquing it back to the same specs and if you're shooting everything that gun's going to come back to zero there's not going to be anything that you have to worry about it's going to return back to where it was before um and uh in the field also like like I said, the, uh, the components, you know, we're not putting anything out that's got a plastic, you know, injection molded stock. The stocks are either going to be a fiberglass layup or a, uh, a carbon fiber um, composite material or 100% carbon fiber. So as you start getting into those things, the component costs go up a great deal. Sure. Uh, we also take our actions, if we were to build from, let's say, that Remington 700 action, we're going to strip that action completely apart and then we're going to put it back in and the man we're going to true up those that receiver right on both ends we're going to true up that bolt face we're going to all those pieces to where when it goes through it is a it's mating up perfectly it's aligned there's no zero you know what i mean there's nothing off everything zeroes out you know that it's like you know it's a perfect fit okay so as we start putting all of our pieces together everything comes into you know it's in unison right so we look at it like from the bottoms up top down end to end everything has to fit perfectly right and when you start putting together i've given the analogy of like when you put together a good sports team right uh 
it was like when you look at like, and I'm not necessarily a Patriots fan. You could do the Patriots. You could do the, you know, like a good other sports teams when they've had a good run, they've put together a lot of times the best collection of players, right. And had a good coach. Yeah. And, and a good general manager. Yeah. And, and a, a good, good owner. General yeah. manager. And when you put all those things together, you get a repeatable process, yeah. right. And you've got something that works. I look at it the same way. If you put together some of the best components and then if you train yourself and you do the same thing too, if you're the man behind the trigger that man or a woman, you're going to have something that's going to work, mm-hmm. right? Um, so uh, yeah, there are some differences. So like, and, and and we're nowhere near, and nor do we ever intend to be anywhere near um, factory pricing, right? Because right. there's yeah. so much that goes into it, um, and I think that's a big hiccup that people get into when they look at our stuff, and you know, and they're like, well, how much is this going to cost, right? And then I'm getting into like what I'm going to call one of our more base models. And you're talking like a $2,500 setup, right? Yeah. And then that can easily go up to a $4,000 rifle before you know it. Yeah. Well, I think that that as soon as I, if, 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 you know, I'm reaching out to you and I'm, you know, I'm saying, Hey Jared, you know, I'm, I'm looking for a custom, you know, hunting rifle, you know, as soon as I say the word custom, I know that there's certain things that are associated with that. You know, one is, is the quality and you know, that you're going to get, but also, a price that comes with anything that's going to be custom made, you know? Yeah. And, and, and with that too, um, you got to factor your lead times, right? Mm-hmm. I think, um, people are just so used to grabbing something off the shelf, right? Yeah. I, I'll just, you know, throw this out here. I don't carry a lot of, um, component parts on hand because I look at it like painting a canvas. Every time somebody comes in, that canvas is going to look different every time. Yep. So I, I'm not trying to throw a peanut butter approach and said it's custom, custom-ish. No, I want it to fit the way you want it, right? It's, right. it's your bill. What's the color do you want? What's the length of your barrel? Do what kind of muzzle brake do you want? You know, the Cerakote options. Like all that goes into making it what fits you and right. what fits your style. Yeah. You know, and that and that go that's a lot that goes into it, meaning that like right now, you know, in the process of like uh, we've got a couple builds that we're kicking off right now. Well, each one of those is going to have something specific. So those stocks are going to be built based off of that barrel channel and that action. Right. Mm-hmm. So when even you got affected that, too, the stocks aren't just an off the shelf stock. Right. When we get it, that stock is already contoured for that barrel that's going to go in it. Okay. So you got to factor like even that goes into a manufacturing process. And, and, and from there, um, some of the ones that we source and use, like some of the faster lead times now are like eight weeks, right? That's a fast lead time. Yeah. Versus it can be in depending on like, if we go one into like a manor stock or something like that, you're looking upwards of six months sometimes yeah. of just getting your stock in at that point, we've got everything else built. We're just waiting to drop it in the stock right. at that point. So that's that kind of comes into like the lead time of how long it takes to get set up with one of these rifles. Yeah, because I, I I feel like there's you can look at custom in, in a few different ways. You know, someone can say like, oh yeah, I, I build custom rifles, but maybe you just get to choose your stock, or you know, there's maybe just a few different components that you can really. Um, go kind of off the beaten path or choose exactly what you want. Whereas it sounds like with, with your company there that really from, from the ground up, it's, it's exactly, you know, what you're looking for and there's, it's, it's custom in the truest, in the truest form. 
Yeah. And I mean, and, um, and we can build off of, you know, primarily I've been using, I, I go back to that 700. And the reason why I say that is because it's based off of a 700 platform, right? Mm-hmm. That can be a Remington. It can be a, like, and then from that action being trued up, then you get into the, the custom manufactured actions, the higher end ones. Then we're talking like a Stiller, a Defiant, a Lone Peak, Kelbley. There's all these different manufacturers of actions too, right? Um, and once you get those, we don't have to touch those. They're, the tolerances are so tight. At that point, we're, cha- you know, we're cutting and chambering a barrel, mating everything up and making sure everything screws, you know, and then we screw it together and then bed it and whatnot and go from there. Um, we're also able to do um, tikas. I mean, um, so if somebody wanted to do, and this is some of the things that I'm now going to put up on our website is like a, a tika makeover package or a Remington 700 makeover package. Um, we've actually been using some barrels from, uh, Oregon mountain rifles, and we've been super impressed with those carbon fiber barrels coming from them. And you're getting a very premium barrel at at a good price point and they, it just feels well and it looks cool. I mean, that's part of it too. Like you get into it. It's like, yeah, yeah, you get all this, but you know, there's, there's a sexy component too that you got to throw in there. Right. Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. Especially it seems like now with more and more people wanting, uh, you know, more of a a custom style rifle even if it's not truly custom you see a lot of manufacturers and even some of the the smaller you know manufacturers i mean when i think of of large firearm manufacturers i'm thinking of remington winchester you know i'm thinking even yeah exactly yeah you know but then you've got other companies like you said like tika excuse me um weatherby which is you know it's you know these these companies are, are growing in popularity but there's a certain look to their rifles that are different than than things that you know your dad used or your grandpa used or yeah. something like that. You mentioned Weatherby, right? Yeah. As soon as, as soon as Weatherby pops in my head, I think of the high comb Monte Carlo cheek piece, right? Because mm-hmm. yep. that was that Weatherby style that Roy Weatherby came up with, you know, back in the '40s, and that style's still there today, yeah. right? They've never left it, you know, and and I think that's pretty cool because it's definitely got their their look to it. Yeah. Now, I know <clears throat> when looking on your website, you guys offer three um, like types of rifles. So what are those and, and kind of what is the difference between them? Yeah. So if you were to look at it, um, you see the um, like an Ozark, a Highlander and a Bomber. Right. Mm-hmm. And there can be iterations of all of them. But essentially what I'm, what you look at is a traditional style hunting. Uh, and, and, and a lot of it comes down to the stock setup, really. Right. Um, mm-hmm. If you look at Ozark being more of like your traditional hunting rifle stock, right? Think of like what your traditional woodstock would look like. Translate that over into either a uh, fiberglass or carbon fiber layup. Um, and then you move into um, the Highlander, which incorporates in more of that cheek piece, that raised cheek piece that I was just talking about. Yep. And um, same thing there, you know, with the materials. And then you look at like the bomber. That gets into more of like what you would uh, think of as your like long range setup that's uh, primarily designed for um, prone shooting, bag shooting off of a pack or something like that. Okay. You can go either, you know, like all of those variations like come with the same accuracy, you know, guarantee and whatnot. It's just what what are you deciding there to? Um, like that Ozark, um, 
that's you, and with a stainless steel barrel, right? If you look at that, that would be a price point that most folks would step into to say, you know what, that I could get it, you know, uh, you know, a seven and a half, eight pound rifle that shoots lights out, right? Yeah. yeah. And, and and it's not going to break the bank. Um, as you start uh, getting into the carbon fiber and all the other stuff too, um, as we know, with like all sorts of gear, ounces equal dollars. Right. <laughs> as oh, you yeah. start As you start cutting out ounces those dollars go up pretty quickly, right. right? I mean, it's not uncommon to have a stock that costs $600 and a barrel that costs $600. Yeah. And I mean, it, that's just two pieces of the component, right? right? Yeah, yeah, that's, um, yeah. There's still a lot more important things that go into it. Right, but I mean, by just having those two pieces alone, you potentially just shave two pounds off of a rifle. Yeah, and, you especially, if you, yeah. and especially if you're in the backcountry, lugging around two pounds for... You know, an extra two pounds for you know seven to ten days. I mean, that that adds up pretty quickly. You start to notice that. Yeah, and I mean, like one of my setups right now, um, it's something we've actually just been working on. It's like we actually came out with our own uh, Wildcat cartridge too. Um, it's called a three hundred Walker Mag. And so oh, what we ended go. up doing was um, we took a uh, a three hundred Wind Mag uh, case. And we essentially what is called like you know actually improving. Um, we just kind of change. So it, so if you take a 300 wind mag, and then you blow it out and you make the case walls pretty much straight up, and then you change it to a 35 degree shoulder, you're still getting. You can still shoot a 300 wind mag through it. It fire forms the brass, and but when you come out of it, when you reload it, you're going to be picking up velocity over the uh, 300 wind mag in that same case. Oh wow. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, I worked with, um, worked with Hornady and if you order through their custom shop, you can actually, uh, order 300 Walker mag dies and with Manson, and if you call Manson receipt, Manson, uh, machining, you can actually order uh, a die, you know, a die set or I mean, I mean the tooling, uh, to cut chambers, you know, and with our name on it. Wow. So, That's awesome. Yeah. I mean, to have your own, your essentially to, develop and then name your own round yeah that's that's pretty awesome yeah we've got a couple others that are uh that we're working on right now that are kind of tongue-in-cheek and um it's fun but we you know we'll probably catch some grief for it but we really don't care um <laughs> we're doing a uh a 224 um a 224 with more and a 243 with more kind of play against the the, the creed moors of the world yeah so um, what we did was we ended up taking the uh, the 243 Winchester case, mm-hmm. and we uh, we basically did the same thing. We blew it out, changed the shoulders, and then made it for um, high, uh, heavy for caliber bullets. So that way, in the same length action as the 6.5 Creedmoor, we're not doing, we're going to be able to put a lot more velocity on the table. Now, so it, it's funny that, that you mentioned the 6.5 Creedmoor because with different like Facebook groups that, that I'm just a part of, you always see guys, you know, asking for, you know, what's a good, you know, rifle for this rifle for that. And you see a lot of the usual suspects, but the six and a half Creedmoor gets thrown around quite a bit. And then I always see guys like bashing people like, Oh, I, I don't even know why, or what, what is the reasoning behind guys seemingly hating on the six and a half Creedmoor? Man. Six and a half Creedmoor has taken, well, let's see when it come out, 2009. It took about 10 years of that thing uh, kicking tail in the um, shooting world, 
for, you know, like competitive shooting. Mm -hmm. And then it branched over into the hunting world. Right. Um, really it's an inherently accurate round. And what by I mean inherently accurate is the, um, the way it's set up, the way the bullet, the design of the cartridge fires very well in a short action. It produces a, um, it shoots a, a a high BC bullet at a moderate speed, right? Which then translates into having, it slips the wind pretty well and it does, it does a good job. That, shooting on steel doesn't always necessarily translate into um, shooting animals at extended ranges, right? right? So right. just because you can sit there and wad it up at 800 to 1,000 yards with this with this caliber, in my book, it doesn't necessarily mean that you should be going and doing the exact same thing on an animal, right? Um, like I said, with Hornady getting behind it, you've got really good factory ammunition available. And I think that that 6.5 Creedmoor is a, is a really good deer round mm-hmm. antelope round something like that small game or, you know like smaller stuff you could go out shoot coyotes with it you could do something like that hogs whatnot it's a good round um do i think that it's a um an elk round no no i don't i don't i mean i mean you can go out there and you can kill an elk um with it but you better have a tough bullet and it's going to be, you need to have shot placement and you need to have some constraint around, um, how far you're engaging when you go and try to take that, you know, that animal. Uh, cause I just feel that there are a lot more calibers that out there that are more capable on the large, on the larger game side. Now, are they and the great thing about them too is, and I'm going to give you the, like the pro side to it is being that you can find readily available ammunition and its cost and the cost is pretty good the great thing is is most people get really good with them right so from an accurate so they get used to shooting that gun which is a plus side so from that standpoint i say it's a great thing and and the thing is too is like my gun that i train with is a six millimeter creed born it's the six five neck down to six millimeter right so you're shooting a, a 243 bullet you know a 24 caliber bullet and it's zippy um and I'm not afraid to use that on deer, but that's my limit, right? right? right. Like it's 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 a deer gun, and I'm 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 going to keep it inside that. It's more or less a deer varmint training gun. Right. Um, that's just because I can shoot it a lot more. I get my practice behind it, and that's what I use. And then I go out and I shoot my bigger guns, which I use a 28 nozzler, and now and I've used like other 30s, but like now the 300 Walker Mag. So like those are the guns that I take at west, right? Okay. And that's what I'm using. Um, so. I think it's the thing is like, can you go out there and shoot something a long range with the six, five Creedmoor? Yeah. Am I going to recommend it? No. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? It just, I, I've got my opinion and, and, and this is just my personal opinion. It's like, I feel like good, like let's say an elk round or something like that. They start at seven millimeter and they go up. Okay. And you know what I mean? So, yeah. That's like, so then that could even, meaning seven millimeter, I'm like, you could still go shoot a 280 Ackley improved, a seven mag, and with the right bullet, yeah, go take an elk all you want, right? But there's just some pieces there too when you start getting into um, like a 30 caliber. Do they have as high a BC as the seven millimeters? No, but they hit with authority. And yeah. that's something else that's different that is in the voodoo of like what happens out there, where, you know, when, when push comes to shove and it hits. I've just, I've been amazed over time of like what happens when you take something with a 30 caliber and I, and I'm a fan of the, you know what I mean? of seven yeah. millimeter stuff too. Cause obviously I shoot them. Right? right. But 
if I, if you told me and I was going elk hunting, I had to pick one, I might even give up the BC for having the heavier bullets. Right. And, I, and that's just kind of where I am. But there's a lot of good calibers out there. And yes, there are, will we build a six, five Creedmoor? Absolutely. We got the reamer. We'll build it. Yeah. <laughs> if you want one, we can do it. Um, well, that, that's the thing is, I mean, I, I rifle hunt. I only rifle. I've only ever rifle hunted here in Michigan. I mean, I've, I don't know that I've ever had to shoot my rifle over. I've never shot at an animal over 120 yards. Right. right. And I've never practiced out past 200 yards. I've just, I've never had a need to, so I've never done it. Right. Sure. So when I, when I see this stuff and people asking about, you know, what's a good rifle, especially for like Western hunts. And you made a good point that shooting like uh, an antelope is much different than shooting an elk or even a mule deer for that matter. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, much, much larger game. And it seems like everyone has their opinion on, you know, what the, the best caliber or the best round is. But for me, for someone who isn't super in tune with a lot of the, that, you know, cartridges and rounds and, and you know, ballistics and all the stuff that, that goes into a great rifle. I mean, I'm going to, I'm going to take the opinion of someone like you who, who does this for a living, right. Who, yeah. who, who, yeah. who knows what the heck they're talking about. Not someone who's just, you know, maybe spent some time, you know, behind a scope on a six and a half Creedmoor and that's all they, that's all that they know. So they, you know, they swear by it. And, and I want to say too, like, if you have in your stable right now, a 270, a 30-06, a 7-mag or something like that, I'm going to go tell you to go hunt out west every year because with the right bullet selection, you can do it. Like like a 270 with a 150-gram bullet, yeah, you can go take an elk with that at the right. You know what I mean? With yeah. the right constructed bullet, like a 150-gram partition bullet, yeah, you better believe. Or like a, or you know, a, maybe a, a solid copper type thing with a, that's a little bit lighter in weight, yeah, you could do it. You know yeah. what I mean? With the 270, it happens every year. The 30-06, a well-versatile that you can do everything with. So I'm not telling you you need to go out there and just buy something new for that. But around here, man, shoot that Creedmoor all day. If you're above the rifle line and you want to go, absolutely. It yeah. would be a heck of a deer gun for here. Yeah. You know what I mean? Just like the 308. The 308, I mean, that was the thing, too. It's like the 308 was around forever doing what it did, and the 6.5 Creedmoor came in and just kind of knocked it off of its pedestal, right? Yeah. But the 308 with the right bullet, you can shoot everything with it, you yeah. know? And if you've got a 308, then, yeah, you can do it. Yeah, I mean, that's... It's funny you mentioned the 270. My brother-in-law took a, took an elk, gosh, I guess it's been seven years ago now, um, with a 270. You know, good bullet with a 270. I think he put two shots into it, but the first one, the first one put it down, and he just put another yeah, one in it. Yep. And, but I mean, that was from, I mean, for me, it's distance. I think he was, you know, between two 250 and 300 yards. You know, when he yep, took and it. That's a, and that's and that's what folks need to understand too. Is like when you go out west, that's a normal distance. Right. Right. That's normal. I mean, and I feel like, you know, I, you know, being proficient out to 500 yards. And then when you go out West, like that, because there's many times where you're going to sit there and glass a hillside and, it, and an animal comes out and it, it's going to be a 400, 425 yard shot. That might be your only opportunity for the entire week right. that you're out there right. on that one shot. And you need to be able to capitalize on that shot in the moment. Well, it's, it's the same kind of principle when it comes to like archery hunting, right? Like practice out yeah. to six, you know, especially here in Michigan, you know, practice out to 60 or 70. So that 30, 35, 40 yard shot seems, seems like a chip know, shot. Exactly. Yeah. And that's exactly. like me. It's like my bow set up, like I got pins out to 80 yards. I'm not shooting anything at 80 yards. Right, you know what yeah. I mean? Around here, like 
the longest shots that I've had. I mean, the, ever, I think, was 35 yards around yeah. here. For, you yeah. know what I mean? That was about it from where I've been set up. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So the um, with, with your, your custom builds, I mean, what would you say? I'm sure lead times have changed a little bit now with yeah. – with um the pandemic and everything which what's your kind of like if if, if all perfect world you know there's there's not delays and stuff what does your your average build time look like i i tell folks four to six just to cover myself you know mm-hmm. what i mean we've had stuff fall in line to where like the stars aligned and everything just shipped you know what i mean we've mm-hmm. finished them as quick as say like six weeks right mm-hmm. but yeah. that's just like if everything came into play and it was like boom 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 we got it right um but you got to figure like some of this stuff like once we order it like i said it's normally you got to figure on the fast side six to eight weeks on average for uh for a stock it can be you know let's say three to four weeks sometimes for a barrel and those are usually the longest uh lead time components okay if they do go to that other side, like a manners, manners, typical wait time, it doesn't matter who you are. You go to the, you go in line, right into the order. Mm-hmm. And that's usually, you know, five or six months on average is what I see, like ordering stocks from them. It'd be the same thing if somebody wanted like a McMillan stock, unless I could get a, a McMillan stock through a wholesale or something like that to where I could go grab one. You know what I mean? That's out there that sometimes I'm able to do that. Um, but component wise, let's say if somebody wanted to, um, Honestly, there, you know, I would say probably six weeks is about the quickest. That okay. would be absolute everything. You know what I mean? Would be about yeah. the quickest. No. Okay. So now I want to shift gears a little bit here. Um, you guys make custom hunting rifles and I'm a big believer that hunting is conservation. I'm sure you would probably agree with that, especially given that Euro elk mount I see behind you there. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you got Flint Ridge Rifles is a 2% certified company. So how how and why did you decide to become 2% certified? Uh, um, so when we built this business model, um, it was built, honestly, completely around conservation first. Um, my, the, you know, the BHAG, the goal was, was... Um, I wanted to be able to give back a half million dollars to conservation over the course of the next, you know, 10, 15 years was like my, the pie in the sky plan is what I wanted to do. So from that, and when the business plan went in, one of the pieces on the onset was, was to become 2% certified in the business plan. So, um, and knowing that too, that means that, um, we're not making the margins that you're going to see out there from others. Right. right? And, and, and that, and, and I've accepted that. And I know that it might take me much longer to get to my desired outcome. But I look at it to when we talk about 2% time and money, right? I, I feel like the, the time portion isn't that bad, right? This last weekend, we just did a cleanup, right? We're out there. It wasn't that bad. And no. we did, and you know, you look at it and we picked up 
so much off of our public lands, right? Just two spots that I go out and, and, and I hunt. And we, if you could fill up two buckets full of spent casings and ski, busted ski and all this other stuff. And we found where some guy had just been dumping oil jugs up over a berm. You know oh, what I mean? Geez. And you pull, you pull stuff like that off. Uh, Hey, let's go eat our Taco Bell and just pitch, you know, tie up the bag and then just pitch the bag. You know, you just see stuff like that and it's disheartening. Right. But I think, too, that if we look at if my kids can see what I'm doing now and it becomes indoctrinated into them that we need to be good stewards of the land and the resource. And it's not just us for the taking. Right. Mm -hmm. That there's things that we can do. To show others and, in, and, you know, that, you know what, guys, we do care about the land and the resource. Right. And and a, from that, it even goes into the like the animal and like and showing our kids like, you know, they get to see the field to fork. Right. You yeah. know, and then like taking my kids, like even from when they were little, it was like. All right, guys, we're going to go to the, you know, the NWTF, um, you know, we call it the turkey banquet. Tonight we're yeah. going to the turkey banquet, right? Mm -hmm. And seeing that, and then, you know, we're buying raffle tickets, and they're, you know, like my son won, like, a Red Rider, you know what I mean, <laughs> doing the youth thing, and it was it was really cool. And then, um, and, I mean, and, and making, taking a rifle, and then, like, we're giving one, you know, I donated a rifle to RMEF this year, you know, so we're taking... We took a Remington 700 long range and we did some accurizing to it. So we ended up like uh, lapping the barrel, doing like a fire lapping thing to make it more accurate. We Cerakoted it, hydro, hydro dipped. So it's still got a factory trigger, but it's been bedded and it's shooting like half minute. <laughs> you oh, know what wow. I mean? And, and we're going to, you know, and that's going to end up being like a, um, through RMEF, you know, it'll go through their, uh, I think like an, they're going to auction that gun off. Right. So that money's going to go back to conservation. So, you know, and there's a lot of groups that I feel, you know, I support and I just want, and then my kids have seen like my involvement with BHA, right. You know, going out there and last year, like when we did the, the run, the, you know, the Michigan rendezvous, they've seen me go out to like Missoula, Boise twice going out there, you know, doing stuff like that. And, um, you know, they know that their dad is interested in it, but they know that, you know, like I care and I want them to care too. Yeah. And, yeah. and from the money side, it's, you know, you got to look at what do you have time, time and money. Right. Mm -hmm. But the way I kind of looked at it was, is like, and I, I think I told somebody, it was like a guy from federal or something like that when we were at the rendezvous last year in Boise, I said, I just kind of consider it my conservation tithe. Right. Yeah. So I'm like, if I can live off, if I, if I can live off the 80%, right of everything else knowing that i've got taxes that are going to have to come out of that right because then i'm because i figure like if i give 10 percent back to conservation you know we hit a certain point we're going to be having to give another 10 percent. you know what i mean back to like Pittman, robertson and things like that there's a lot in there right? right so those margins get cut down so like our operating the income off that is lower right yeah. but we're just going to current turn around and keep just like putting it back into the business and doing what we can and yeah it's it's just it's i think too that i you know i haven't worked in like my jobs have not always been in the hunting space mm -hmm. right so like so much of my job has been as a businessman or something out in the um 
in the real world, right? Talking to people who are non-hunters, right? right? And having a positive spin and being able to deliver a message to folks that, you know, they can then view hunting in a different, in a different manner. Right. And then you can have those people over and then you can have some venison diplomacy and then you can <laughs> a meal for them. And, and, and they're like blown away. Right. And so like my brother-in-law, sister-in-law, they love to come over cause they're like, man, are we going to have elk tonight? <laughs> you know, cause they're just like, it's like the best meat ever. <laughs> like yeah, it is. My, my sister-in-law was joking. She's like, can I like sponsor you like for tags? <laughs> yeah, if you like, want to pay for my out of state tags, sure. If you want to pay for my tags, which means I get to hunt more. Like, yeah, by all means. Yeah, I was it, like, oh, my wife's gonna agree. It's uh, y- you made a couple a couple points here that I wanted to touch on that that I've found w- when speaking to um, people on the podcast here is that one, a lot of people that that have a two percent certified business it's maybe not their, um, primary income. Like for you, I know we talked, you have, you have your own job. The, the Flint Ridge rifles is, is uh, a side project that you have. And yeah, exactly. And typically what you see with companies or with people that start, uh, a second stream of income, you know, with, with some type of side business or side hustle, whatever, like it's to make money, right? It's, it's to try to increase their, you know, their income. But with, a lot of the companies that I've spoken to or people that I've spoken to is that before they even started, they're, they're part of the goal or part of the mission of their, that company that they're forming is to give back to conservation. So I think it, it, it speaks volumes to not only yourself, but you know, a lot of these other smaller companies out there that they're not making a ton of money off of it. And you know, 10 or five or 15, whatever percentage that they are making is already going right back to conservation. So, I mean, that's, that speaks volumes to the people that are, you know, hunters and, and conservationists in general and what they're, they're willing to sacrifice to make sure that, um, you know, we're preserving our lands and our waters and our habitat. And going back to the point that you made, your kids are seeing that, that this, you know, the, the time that you're giving back really should just be a part of, of being an outdoorsman, being a conservationist. Yeah, and I and I, it, I think it's just like I have a very hard time calling myself a conservationist. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like I, I don't know if I'll ever do it, right? Even though I may embody it in my actions, mm-hmm. I just will have the hardest time ever calling myself something. You know what I mean? Because I look at other folks out there, you know, like, and I would think like, oh, that guy's a conservationist. You know what yeah. I mean? Like on on a big pedestal or something like that. But I mean, you know, are we doing it? Yeah, we are. You know what I mean? Yeah. We're conservationists in our day to day, but you know, I'll always do it, but I may not call myself that, you know? Yeah. Yeah, (laughs) And I think, and I think that for, for guys like for you and me and other guests we've had on, on the podcast that to call yourself a a conservationist, like it almost seems like when you don't want to call yourself that it's because there's so much more. It's just, it's kind of a given thing that you're doing, that you're participating in as, as an outdoorsman or as an outdoors woman, right? It's just, it comes with the territory of, you know, taking from the land and giving back to it, you know? Right. Yeah. And I mean, and, and that is a, you know, and I know RMEF uses the slogan, hunting is conservation, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, and, and we've all heard it many times. Hunting is a byproduct of conservation. Right. Right. Yep. So, and, the, and it really is. And I mean, absolutely, you know, buy your tags, buy your duck stamps, buy all the other stuff, right? Yeah. We need it. It goes back to the resource. It's good. So, yeah, no, I, I think that anything that we can do to help give back, give back is going to, you know, and I think too, like, I feel like the momentum has really changed 
um, and the and the way people view conservation right now. And if you look at some of the things that have happened, right? I mean, the passage of the great, you know, the you know, Great American Outdoors Act, like things like that, right? Mm-hmm. I, t- sometimes when you talk to folks, they're like, it's a no brainer. And then when you just think about like, do you like to go hiking? Sure. Do you like to go fishing? Do you like to just walk on a trail? Yeah. Yeah. Do you like to go skiing in some places? Sure. You know, most of those ski places are actually sitting out there on like national forest. Right. Yeah, <laughs> you know, absolutely. like, it's like, Oh, Oh. So if I like to do those things, you mean it like money goes into that? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And, and yeah, that's the thing. A lot of people don't realize that for, you know, they, some people maybe that, that aren't hunters or, or anglers or anything where they're, you know, necessarily taking from the land that they don't understand how the mechanism works with, with funding, you know, wildlife and, and, you know, our national parks and, you know, our BLM land, like they, they just don't understand how the big picture works and where that money comes from, you know, so to be able to, to have something like the Great American Outdoors Act passed and how it's going to benefit, you know, everyone from top to bottom, no matter what you like to do is, I've told this to some other people, I mean, it's historic, you know? Yeah. Oh yeah. And I mean, I might be prognosticating right now, but at the same time, like that backlog of funding, right. To go against our parks and everything like right now would be a prime time. If somebody were, <laughs> were you know what I mean? Like there's going to be contracts that are going out, right. People who have resources or are in that kind of realm could stand to profit a lot from working just on our parks and could end up making entire careers oh, yeah. out of if they did it right, right now, they could go in and be awarded some of these government contracts. Next thing you know, they were the ones that helped clean up, you know, Yosemite, Yellowstone, yeah. you know, and some of these other big national parks. And I mean, I feel like there's going to be there's that's income streams for folks right there's going to be jobs that are going to be created because of this yeah that's a good thing that's a very good yeah now i wanted to kind of wrap things up here and talk and ask do you have like any big hunts or anything like that that you're excited about for this year that you're looking forward to oh yeah i'm i'm definitely stoked this year so um good good buddy of mine uh, Brian Chaika is actually going to go with me on this one. I know, you know, you were able to speak to him recently. Yeah. Uh, so I actually drew, um, figured this year is like of all years, right? 2020, I might as well just like throw my name in. And I literally applied for elk and mule deer in the same unit. And I've never, I've done that before and I've never actually drawn. So ended up drawing this year, um, a mule deer, and an elk tag in the same unit. And so I, I'm super stoked. It's going to be in Colorado. This is a, um, it's actually like what they've almost like a migration hunt, right? Okay. So you've got multiple units around and as pressure starts happening, they funnel down. Uh-huh. So it's totally different than what I've normally done in Colorado where like, if you're looking at the, this is a second rifle season draw. So most of the time you're going to second rifle and you're either in an over-the-counter unit mm-hmm. and that's the, that's when it opens up, right? And this is there are units out there where it's draw only during second rifle. Okay. So that's what we're doing here. And there are resident elk uh, in the unit that stay in there. So there's a summer range and a winter range. And so what we're trying to do is get in there and target some of these areas to where from the summer winter range and try to find where the mule deer and or the elk migrations 
kind of merge mm -hmm. and to set up it and work on some of that. So it's going to be, um, the terrain's going to be a little bit different than what I'm normally used to doing. So where it's almost kind of like little sky Island type areas where you've got like, um, lower land, lower land, meaning 7,000 feet, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, so like if you got foothills, right. And then from there, you're going to have uplifts and those uplifts can run up like 10, 11,000 feet. So you, what you have is like little, chain almost like little island type things of mountains that rise up and so targeting through there so there'll be a lot of glassing a lot of long range glassing so yeah so i'm super stoked to do that you know go out there and then um coming up first thing coming up actually is uh my uh we've got the youth hunt here in michigan so going up in a couple weeks and taking my son this is the first year he got his tag so doing the mentored youth hunt and so taking him and one of our other friends, uh, we're going to go up north and do that, you know, September 12th and 13th. And then, like I said, then go to Colorado and then we'll come back and then obviously do like Michigan, uh, yeah. you know, like uh, and then I'll probably I'm sure I'll be in a tree stand October 1st, too. Yeah. So, <laughs> so, no, and, that's, and then back to Whitetail. Yeah, no, that's super exciting, especially being able to uh, <clears throat> enjoy that with your son, with the with the youth. And I'm sure that'll be a, a pretty memorable experience for both of you guys. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, this is a, uh, it's, oh man, doing stuff with kids now and trying to get all this other stuff. Like I I've never really hunted out of the ground blind, but this year I'm like, I think I have to have a ground blind. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> cause, I, cause, I, Cause I'm like, uh, movement, all the other stuff. And I'm like, it's going to be a rodeo going around, you know, behind the scenes trying to get this thing set up and get the kids on everything. So I, I really look forward to it. And, and he's like so excited. Um, got him a bow this year so he's actually like shooting his own compound bow so awesome. yeah so get getting him dialed and getting his setup ready and then um you know and then we're doing some more work now to just try to get him on the rifle and yeah. you know get him squared away on the rifle side too no well I, I wish you guys the best of luck with that but so i've got one more question and then i'm gonna let you go here you build custom hunting rifles you're it sounds like you you've spent plenty of time behind the scope shooting long range. What's the, the furthest that you would feel comfortable taking an elk? Oh man, that's a loaded question. You know that, right? I know Lo loaded or half. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'll just be honest. Like I've taken an elk at 800 yards. Okay. That's I've a poke, man. I mean, that's I've also taken, I've also taken an elk at 515 yards. And so, those are my two longest on elk. So, uh, that's it's still decent. You know what I mean? I've taken, I've taken plenty of whitetails at that distance too, you yeah. know, but, uh, and then, you know, mule deer was like, I think I took a mule deer Montana a few years ago. It was like three fifty. Um, but my, I, I've got my own like 800s. Like I, I have engaged targets and consistently hit out to 1600 yards. But, um, <laughs> Wow. I, that's, so, I, my, my jaw just hit the ground. I mean, 1600, <laughs> I, geez, oh, Pete, I, that, that's super we've, impressive. And we've shot, we've shot all the way out to, you know what I mean? All, so 1760 is a mile. We've shot out to 1700. You know what I mean? So yeah. just, um, and when we go out West, we usually set up, but I mean, last year before I left Colorado, I, I was like, all right, I'm going to challenge myself. I picked out our, I picked out a spot and it was a uh, 660 yards. And I shot a three shot, three inch group at 600 at, yards, 660 yards, almost so, 700. Yeah. Jeez. 
<laughs> wow. I, I mean, that's that's really impressive, man. So, but I mean, that's a, that's a lot of practice. But I mean, I'm telling you, like, I, I sweat the details going into that. I'll also tell you, too, that, like, I have not taken shots at longer ranges because the, idea, the conditions weren't right, and I've closed mm-hmm. that distance. Yeah. Um, when I took that bull at 800 yards, it was the only opening I had from ridge to ridge, and it was in an opening. It was completely still. I had no wind, and that bull was sitting there broadside. I shot. I hit it. It spun around. I shot. I hit it again. You know what I mean? So you and, put two <laughs> in it from that distance. Two, yeah, I put two in at 800 back to back. So um, obviously, I was confident with my setup. Like prior in that week, I had been down to the foothills. I had literally sat there and I picked out a rock at 1177 yards, and I punched that same rock that I'd picked out twice. Okay. So I was confident in my setup with everything. Um, I, I do shoot a lot just to make sure, like it's that I'm dialed. And, yeah. and if I don't feel confident in that, or if I feel like something's off. I'm not going to take it, but yeah, I mean, that's, that's, I mean, we've only been speaking for about an hour here. So, but I can tell that that's not something that you just do kind of willy nilly, you know, shooting at an animal at, at that distance. I mean, it, it's obvious to me that you, you definitely put in the time and the preparation to feel comfortable taking a shot and, you know, you're, you're doing the calculations, you, you know, you're making sure that the conditions are perfect for a shot at that distance. Yeah. And I mean, I'm going to build you a gun that's going to be able to go out there and shoot a five inch group at a thousand yards. Now, am I going to go tell you to go do it? No, no. Yeah. <laughs> Put in your work to get to that point. Yeah. You know what I mean? Learn that thing. I, I treat basically here's, here's one of the things I'll tell you. I know before we got to go, but like treat your barrels, like treat, like changing your oil. Okay. In your car, mm-hmm. they're made to be shot. They're made to be shot out. It's super, it's not that expensive to change out a barrel. Okay. If you think about it that way, I think that if you, you know, you're not going to go out, you know, most folks aren't going to go out there. Like you're going to shoot your bow like crazy, right? You're going to know your pins. You're going to know your gaps or you doing whatever you're using on your slider. You're going to know those things, right? You're going to be in tune with that. I feel like you should be in tune with the exact same way your gun as you should. You should owe that to yourself to do that same level of practicing to learn that. And like I said, if you burn it out, you get a hold of me. We just put a new one on for you. (laughs) It's, you know what I mean? It's, it's, I would, I would feel much better, you know, in the long run saying, you know, like, oh, I just put 1,600 rounds through this thing and it's not shooting as well now. I'm like, all right, let's rebarrel it. Yeah. But you know what? You just put 1,600 rounds through that gun. <laughs> yeah, that's that's a lot of rounds for, for a gun. You know what I mean? And most folks will never, ever, ever, from a hunting type thing, that gun is going to get passed down. You'll see it in our thing, a generational acquisition. Yep. But nine times out of ten, it's going to get passed down with that same barrel multiple generations yeah. and it's still going to be shooting fine 40 50 years from now yeah so no that's that's great and that's a, a very good way to look at um the purchase of a custom rifle is it's a generational acquisition and i mean i have guns from from my dad from my grandpa i mean it's just no one wants to get rid of it there's there's memories and things like that that go along with it so yeah just keep passing it down and keep taking care of it and it'll it'll treat you right that's right yeah all right, Jared. Well, I really appreciate you taking some time today. This was uh, an awesome, awesome conversation and, and getting to learn more about Flint Ridge Rifles and, and, and what you're doing over there is was really cool. I appreciate it. And I am, Mark, I appreciate your time and, uh, you know, thanks for having me on. Yeah, well, best of luck uh, when you head out to Colorado and, and make sure that uh, Brian's doing a majority of the uh, hauling there if you get one down. That's why I had to bring a pack mule, man. <laughs> 
Well, from talking to him, he's pretty excited about it. So. Oh, yeah, yeah. He's an awesome dude. Yeah. All right, well, take care of yourself. All right, you too. We'll All see right, you, thanks. man. All right. Well, there you have it, guys. A big thank you to Jared for taking some time to hop on the podcast today with me. Uh, I'd also like to thank our partners over at Stone Glacier. Be sure and check them out at stoneglacier.com. Um, I'd also like to thank our partners over at 2% for Conservation. If you're interested in learning more about 2% for Conservation, you can visit their website, fishandwildlife.org. And there you can see all the different certified brands that are committed to conservation that you should support when you're shopping for your firearms, for your coffee, for your guiding services, uh, your books, your real estate, uh, your beer, your wine, um, your clothes, your hunting gear. Again, whatever you're looking for, um, there's probably a brand that's 2% certified that you can shop. Um, I also encourage you guys to give 2% a follow on social media where it's going to be nothing but very positive um, conservation-driven content coming out of their various feeds. Uh, so again, if you'd like to learn more about 2% for Conservation, you can look for them online on social media or at fishandwildlife.org. Thanks for tuning in, guys. Hope you uh, really like this week's episode. Remember, stay safe out there, and conservation starts with you.